Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Monergy Life. This is your host, Robert Fisher. I am especially pleased to welcome my guest tonight, Dr. Hushang Amiramadi. Dr. Amiramadi was a recent candidate in the 2013 presidential elections in Iran. Uh, he is a professor of planning and international development uh, at the Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy in Rutgers State University of New Jersey. He's the founder of the American Iranian Council, the AIC, and has been active as a consultant and a an incredible resource for corporations and governments regarding Iran. The talk tonight is going to focus on not just Iran, although I'm sure there's so much to talk about regarding Iran, but also Iran's position regarding the U.S., Iran's position in the Middle East and in the world. It should be an absolutely fascinating conversation. Dr. Amiramade should be calling in any moment. And this could not be a more timely chat, considering the world events going on. As we await anxiously the decision of the United States on whether to have any kind of uh, interaction in Syria, I think that uh, it'll be very interesting to hear Dr. Miramati's uh, perception on the U.S. role in the Middle East, including Syria, as well as the question of nuclear arms in Iran. And as we're waiting for him to call in, I, I'm just very pleased to have him as a guest. And uh, we should be in for a very stimulating chat. Uh, it's, it's also interesting to note that uh, Dr. Miramati has been in this country for over 40 years, and as I understand it, he was on the ballot of the 2013 elections in Iran, but was not actually allowed for people. People were not actually allowed to vote for him, and we're, we're going to hopefully find out why and what happened. Uh, when he calls in, and hopefully that should be any moment. Um, I know that in the United States we have a very limited and stereotypical perception of Iran and its people, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so pleased to have Dr. Miramati on the show. Hopefully he's going to dispel a lot of the illusions that we have about uh, the people in Iran, and what they want, what they want for themselves, how they see themselves in the world, and um, what the future lies for relations between the United States and Iran, and between Iran and the rest of the world. Uh, there's a lot of information being spread in the media concerning Iran's support for various uh, terrorist groups in the Middle East. We're going to find out, hopefully, uh, what what Dr. Miramane thinks about that. And what I'm most curious about are the people of Iran, because, you know, it's very often the case that we get an impression about 
the political stance of a country from one or two leaders who uh, are looking for publicity for various reasons. And unless you really go to that country, you never really get a feel for the people and what the people want. I'm I'm going to project here and go out on a limb and just and just suggest that the people of Iran are not any different than the people of the United States and that both countries the people just want to live in peace and enjoy their life for the most part. So uh it's the governments that sometimes uh get things all stirred up and create issues for the people. But it will be very interesting to to hear what he has to say. Uh, and I hope there wasn't any delay in his calling. Uh, I spoke with him about 15 minutes ago, and he was en route to a place where he could talk. So hopefully he should be calling in any moment. Uh, in that interim... Um I think it's I think it's very interesting um what is going on in Syria too because uh that part of the world has certainly been a hotbed of war um miscommunication and just a lot of uh, I think a lot of ignorance concerning um what what's really going on there and here again I really think it's so difficult for people to get a handle on what's going on. And there is the doctor now. Doctor, is that you? Yes, I am so sorry. I'm a few minutes late. I just got locked up with that situation. Oh, no problem. I I, I was just telling our listeners that I, I was sure it was something like that. It gave me an opportunity to pontificate a little bit on what's going on in the Middle East. So I want right. to... Let me just bring you up to speed just a little bit. I suggested to our listeners that there's so much misinformation out there concerning the people of Iran. And one of the reasons I'm so pleased to have you on the show, not just to talk about policy and politics, but to get a feel for the people of Iran and what the people of Iran want. And I suggested to the audience, and I went on a, a little bit on a limb here, Doctor, I suggested that... My feeling is, even before our conversation, that the people of Iran want just what the people of the United States want. They want peace. They want to live a good life and enjoy their lives. And I, 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 I found that that's the way the people are almost wherever you go in the world. It's the governments that sometimes cause the problems, you know? <laughs> that, you are so right, uh, Bob. You are so right. The Iranian people are just... Uh, the, the, the same people as everywhere else. These are people for peace. They wanted to have a good life. They exactly. wanted to live comfortably. They wanted to live with neighbors in 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 good relations. They actually Absolutely. the people are very much uh, fond of the American people. Believe it I'm or sure. not, if, I'm sure. I, I do believe it. Yeah, uh, believe me. The Iranian people in the Middle East are more pro-American than any uh, people in that region. Any, I mean it. And uh, I mean, uh, it's only unfortunate that the Iranian government uh, uh, stands between the Iranian people and the Americans. And then they, obviously, as you said, governments do what they do. 
hands and only right. unfortunate that they are, do not always represent the, the best wishes of the people. Absolutely, and it's also unfortunate that the news media chooses to demonize certain countries. It, you know, and I'm not saying that 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 it only happens in the United States. It happens all around the world, where where the government probably has a certain interest in perpetuating hatred and ignorance, and and the media really just plays true. along. That's right. Particularly countries that are dictatorial, they usually right. always look for an enemy. Absolutely. So it's just. But, uh, Right, but, but you know, even in the United States, you know, I, I could tell you that um, uh, just taking the focus off of Iran for a minute, before um, Gorbachev and before all of Eastern Europe fell, I mean, Russia and the and communism was so demonized in the United States. And then when we meet people from there, we realize they're just fantastic people, and and, and you just wonder what was all that propaganda about. That is very true. In fact. I have sent many of my friends, American friends, to Iran over the years, and believe me, every single one, when returned, became an ambassador of goodwill for that country everywhere they go. I, mean, I am they not surprised. They enjoy that place. They, they, they are received absolutely. But unfortunately, as I said, there are always you know, bad guys everywhere. There right. are radicals everywhere. There are government Absolutely. 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 Should, well, hopefully, yeah, yeah, you know, hopefully with our talk today, we're going to provide a little more information to the American people and the people around the world listening so that they can get a more accurate and balanced view of what's really going on. Um, you know, right. I'd, like, I, I'd like to start... Since politics is in the air, look at what's going on with Syria. I mean, you know, when I was waiting for you to call in, I was talking about that situation in Syria. And, you know, you almost can't talk about Iran without talking about the rest of the Middle East. But before we get into the, the politics of the region, I would like to clarify certain political issues in Iran itself, if you don't mind. Um, I was doing a little bit of research before the show, and I understand that the way the power structure is in Iran, the president exists, the president is elected, and as I mentioned to our listeners, you were a candidate in the recent 2013 presidential elections. But in addition to the president, what you have in Iran, correct me if I'm wrong, please, is you have something called the leader. And Now, is that the Ayatollah, the leader? That's right. It's called uh, the leader of the revolution. Yes. That's Ayatollah Khamenei these days. Yes. Now, is that the 1975 revolution we're talking about? 1979. 79. Yes. Okay. And and then That's you right. also have something called the Expediency Council, right? The Expediency Council was created after the revolution to judge uh, certain situations and see if the Islamic Republic should and on B or A position vis-a-vis -vis that particular situation. That is to see what is in the best interest of the system. And uh, so the Expedient Council is a council of um, a group of 30-some people uh, who decide on whether, uh, for example, Iran should uh, interfere in uh, in, the, in the in the in the war that U.S. may impose on Syria, mm -hmm. or 
the expediency council for example voted against iran's intervention in the war the u.s imposed on iraq I see. Uh, so the, yeah, the expediency council therefore the name says it it basically says that uh, that that group uh, makes a decision for the system as a whole uh, mm-hmm. and that decision is based supposedly on the best interest of the okay. system okay now is that composed of secular figures and clerics a mixture or what no the secular seculars are completely out of picture in the islamic republic then they are nowhere in the power interesting even in the expediency council there's no everywhere. secular figures absolutely there is not a single institution I mean, official government institutions, the state institution, that that secular forces have any uh, official position. They obviously, uh, there are many seculars that are in, for example, government offices that work, technocrats and, and so mm-hmm. on, but they are not really, they are not in management or decision-making positions. Interesting. So then you also have the National Security Council as well, besides the Expediency Council? Yeah, that's uh, that's just like our National Security Council. It's a council, again, a, a group of uh, 11 or 12, depending on the situation, people. Uh, includes the military uh, commanders. It includes the foreign minister, the president, who is the chairman of that uh, council. Okay. And uh, it includes the representative from the leader uh, and then also members, representative from the not the Ministry of Information or Intelligence, that is to say, mm-hmm. Ministry of Interior, and then a few other people. So it's a, it's a council that decides on the national security matters, mm-hmm. like, for example, on the negotiation over the nuclear issue. Right, that would be the National Security Council. Well, they would be the, the group that decides on the direction, and that direction then is given to foreign ministry, Okay. And the Prime Minister will take it and, and, and does the negotiation. So then the president, though, is actually elected by the people. That was the office that you, you tried to run for in 2013. That's right. right? The Islamic Republic has two uh, kinds of institutions, elected and uh, non-elected. Right. The non-elected uh, institutions are elected like, like the Expediency Council, like the Council mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, National Security Council. Uh, the uh, the uh, the assembly of experts, which decides on the uh, on the leadership, the leadership himself. These are non-elected bodies. Right. Uh, but then uh, there is also but but there are elected bodies that includes the parliament. So it's a parliamentary system. It is a part with with this with this religious superimposed structure on top of it. That is, is that right. fair to say? I mean, so they, you have that is true. In fact, the Islamic Republic has two sides to it: the religious side and the people's side, right? Or the Islam side and the people's side. Obviously, the Islam side always stands above the people's side. Now, what do you mean by that? Are, that it stands. What do you mean by that? That it stands above it. For what example, the supreme leader, who is a religious authority. Yes, the Ayatollah, right? Veto, the Ayatollah can veto. Any, any decision the president, which is an elected really? body, or the parliament can make. I so understand he, that now. Ultimately, he, at the end of the day, it is the religious authorities that make the decision, final decision. But, but in practice, 
it must be a balancing act because I, I, I here again it, it seems to me as though the Ayatollah must tread carefully not to upset too much of what the people want in spite of its power. Well, that's very true. In fact, uh, uh, again, uh, depends on the situation on the ground. Absolutely. If the regime feels uh, pressured uh, for whatever reason, the inflation is high, the unemployment is high, that kind of a right. stuff, then it usually uh, softens and it uh, listens more to the people, respects the votes, uh, mm-hmm. and so on. But then again, if the regime finds itself in, in a good position, and that doesn't need to listen, then it doesn't listen, unfortunately. So uh, that's that's the way it works. Uh, But uh, broadly speaking, I have to say, Iran, except for a few countries in the region, and notably Israel and and, uh, Turkey, uh, you know, with the exception of these two countries, Iran is more democratic than any, any state in that region any state in that region. In fact, many in the region don't even have a constitution or any election. All the Arab countries in the region have, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right. the Iranian region, I mean the Persian Gulf, yes. have no election whatsoever. But I want to point out are, to our listeners, and this is an important distinction, while Iran is primarily Muslim, it is not Arab. Correct? It's not Arab, of course it's not Arab. And also, and, and A lot of people are not aware of that, though. Oh yes, and I, I have I, I have noticed that sometimes they are not Arabs and they are a different kind of uh, Muslim. They are Shia Muslim as opposed to the Sunni Muslim, which is right. uh, predominant in the Arab world. For example, yes. Al Qaeda Al Qaeda is a Sunni Muslim. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, while the Iranians are Shia, and the Sunni Muslims are not always uh, friendly to Shias. Oh, I'm aware of that. I'm I'm aware of that quite well. Uh, Now, getting back to Iran just for a moment here. So how would you, in terms of a power structure, where would you equate, if we were trying to put the presidency of Iran on a certain level, um, and on one side was the Ayatollah, the Expediency Council, National Security. Would you say the president is below that or in sort of a floating negotiating position depending on the issue involved? Well, the Islamic Republic is organized at two levels. One is obviously at the level of the state. That mm-hmm. includes the, the, the government, the, the parliament, the judiciary system, uh, the army, and the rest of it. At that level, the society is run, or is, it is, you know, the authority is the leader, the religious uh, leader. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the government is a subset of the state. That is, uh, like, uh, even in this, uh, you know, uh, in, in many countries, that's the case, but not, uh, like, in the United States, the state and the government are the same, because yes. the president is the, is, is the top guy. Right. In uh, in Iran, that's not the case. The top guy is not the president. He is the second in in, the, in command, supposedly. The second. Mm-hmm. The second. Mm-hmm. But there is a, 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 a at the at the state level, at the level of the religious authority, the Iranian society continues to remain 
a revolutionary society. It remains a more Islamic society. It, it, it has lots of more restrictions uh, uh, than, than otherwise uh, would be the case with the, 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 the level of government. The government, on the other hand, is always more pragmatic, more uh, moderate, and it is always, because it's always uh, is concerned with daily uh, stuff, they yeah. has no, the government needs to uh, feed people, create jobs. Yeah. It needs to run. The government needs to run. Yeah. That's right. They run to run. So they have to be pragmatic. They have to mm-hmm. be open. They have to be more moderate and the rest of it. On the other hand, the uh, the the religious authorities uh, really are not involved in daily uh, day-to-day operations of the state. So therefore, they can, uh, as I say, afford to be a revolutionary rejectionist and that sort of thing. So right. you have this two, uh, this two, di- the two level, this dichotomy right. in the uh, Islamic Republic between the leader and the state being revolutionary and the government, uh, that is the president, being more rad- more uh, pragmatic and, and moderate. Mm-hmm. Now there are certain things that they. Uh, that the government can do, it runs the country, and uh, it can make lots of decisions. But when it comes to more fundamental strategic uh, decisions, uh, the government has limitations, restrictions, and uh, red red lines. And at that level, it is the leader, uh, the larger picture, that -hmm. that enters the scene. For example, on U.S.-Iran relations, up to a point, you know, the government can work and, and do certain things. But then whether uh, U.S. and Iran should normalize relations, that is not in the authority of the government. It's under the authority of the leadership. Whether and Iran has to suspend uranium uh, altogether, it's not in the authority of the government. It's the authority of the state. And but how do you whether think Iran can yeah, slow... Mm-hmm. Whether Iran can slow the enrichment and make certain compromises, yes, is in the authority under the authority of the government. So there are things that yeah. uh, they, that, uh, that government can do, and there are things that the government cannot do. And the, right. larger, and I the think bigger the picture actually, becomes, yeah, I, you know, the it's, bigger it's the a new becomes, it yeah. was uh, the, the, the bigger the decision maker becomes. Interesting, because, you know, I would have almost gotten a different impression by the former president of Iran, and forgive me if I don't pronounce his name correctly, uh, Ahmadinejad. 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 Because he was the president, right? Yes. He was not the leader, and yet he seemed to be taking a very aggressive or at least a vocal role in what he wanted to happen. Now, was that unusual for, in terms of his, his prominence? Well, uh, to some extent, he was certainly more aggressive and more open, uh, independent-minded than any previous president. And I think he probably is uh, more independent-minded than even this new president. Uh, and uh, I think there was a reason for that. The reason for that is that uh, he came from the same... A group of people that uh, that uh, Ayatollah Khamenei wanted to be in charge, so he was very close to Khamenei, and Khamenei would trust him 
uh, you know, with, uh, uh, and therefore uh, he would, uh, you know, he would uh, sort of let him, uh, uh, let him uh, do things that he would not let other presidents who were not very close to him, for example, ideologically, do. So uh, Ahmadinejad had this privilege of being very close to Khamenei, and as such, he could do things that other presidents were not in a position to do. I understand. I that's that's because, one yeah, he was one of the revolutionaries, I assume, back Yes, with and at the same time, the personality was quite uh, an aggressive, uh, uncontrollable personality. He was uh, a maverick. So uh, he, you, you could hardly control him. He just, you know, personality-wise, he was all over it. Yeah, it it certainly seemed that way from where I was sitting. But you know, here again, uh, I was sitting in the United States, so it's, <laughs> I just, you know, it, no, no, that's, you are right. Your impression is completely right. Well, it's a very good impression, very good take on him. You know, yeah. being more independent, more aggressive. Right. You know, uh, that's right. He, he was that kind of a person. And what is he doing now that he's no longer president? <laughs> That was what all presidents do. You know, they find a, a private job or something. I think he is. Uh, he has established. Going to think uh, tank. <laughs> yeah, he has established an international university called the International University of the Iranian International University, something like that. It is not yet operational, but obviously he's trying to make it operational. And he also was appointed by the uh, leader into this expediency council, no, not the yeah, expediency council. So mm -hmm. he sits on this expediency council now. I see, I see. Yeah. And um, so what, what prompted you to want to make a run for president in 2013? Well, uh, the problems are back in Iran. I mean, uh, I feel very bad for the Iranian people. I think they need help. They need uh, an alternative. Uh, an alternative voice, a voice that uh, speaks differently and, more importantly, a voice that has, that understands the international relations, the international economy, uh, the international environment, and that uh, a voice that has solution for Iran's problems, uh, economic problems, political problems, problems with the U.S., uh, and the rest of it. So I uh, living in this country for 30, almost nine years and, you know, teaching and doing work overseas and keeping some good close connection with Iran, I felt I was well qualified uh, to help uh, the Iranian people. I provided them with an alternative uh, platform. I was the only candidate that had a platform, uh, indeed. So uh, my platform was very uh, you know, uh, no, very open, transparent, and it will tell you exactly from A to Z of what Hussein uh, Gambir Ahmadi as president will do, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in foreign policies, in relation with the U.S., in Iranian the domestic economy, on uh, human rights and the rights of women, and what it would do for the young Iranians, the ethnic Iranians, you know, religious Iranians and all that stuff. So I was very, uh, you know, I was the one who really put an alternative plan on the table 
for the Iranians. But then again, my plan was obviously a bit uh, uh, too radical for this particular regime, which doesn't want to really to change lots of stuff. It wanted to maintain the status quo and repair, okay, the damages, okay, to extent, to the extent that it those repairs do not change anything significant in the regime's, uh, you know, its infrastructure or superstructure. Uh, and I wanted real change, an institutional change, for example, structural change, you know. I wanted the, uh, the Iranian, for example, I was telling the Iranian people that in the first hundred days I would mend relations with the United States of America. And I would have. I would have uh, brought a lot of the expatriate Iranians back to Iran. I would have solved the economic problem by bringing foreign investment big time to the country. It would have changed that. It would have completely mm-hmm. changed the, the picture, the scene. Yes. Yes. Now let me but ask you again, this. So, what happened to your candidacy? Well, uh, I went back to Iran to uh, in May to register, uh, but then uh, you know, you know, in the Iranian presidential election, you have four four basically stages. Stage one, you declare yourself a candidate, and you campaign. Stage two, you have to to you register officially with the mm-hmm. Interior Ministry. Stage three. The Guardian Council, that watchdog, approves or disapproves you, and the stage four, the people vote. Right. You know, I went through the stage one all to and all together, and the stage second, when I went to Iran to register, they physically stopped me from doing it. They basically, uh, you know, took me to a side and uh, hotel and told me that. Uh, that uh, I don't, they don't want me to register, uh, and I said why? They said because. You, um, you know, we are not prepared for you. Your your platform is too radical for us, and that you, you need to wait for longer, and that uh, you know, your campaign has the potential to disturb the peace of the society because people like you. There's tremendous uh, movement on your side here, and we just can't afford, uh, you know, that. So, uh, so they would not allow me physically. Stop me from uh, registering. Well, did, I, they, uh, did they threaten you physically at all? No. Did you I feel you were under any kind of threat? No, no. They, they didn't physically me, harm me, but they did. Yeah, they did. They did threaten me in a in a nicely, word wordly, basically saying if you if you don't listen to us, you will pay a price. For example, I don't know what that means, but uh-huh. but they obviously they obviously wanted me to stay away. So and you they didn't had register. made that decision. Was that are we are we talking about now the expediency council that came to you that wouldn't let you register? No, that would be the guardian council. The guardian council. So the people yeah. who were in charge of, reg, of of registration were controlled by the by the either the expediency or the guardian the guardian council. They are, right? They are controlled. I mean, they are. They, they, I mean, it's a a group of uh, controllers out there. The intelligence ministry. The Guardian Council, you know, uh, these are the two majors uh, that, that control, uh, uh, you know, the election. And then, of course, the Interior Ministry. In a way, uh, the, the system, when it comes to secular people like me, they act unison. They are really together. You know, they, uh, the Islamic Republic doesn't want secular people around. 
Tedious. Well, they want a religious something, season. Professor, let me ask you this. In terms of the breakdown of the population, what percentage would you say are devout Muslims and what percentage are secular in the society? Well, Do you have any uh, idea? I mean, our first Iranians are all Muslims. I know that, but I'm talking course. about these but devout Muslims. But the devout Muslims, very few, probably 10% are the devout Muslims. The rest are uh, either, you know, just uh, moderately Muslim or completely secular. So you have I think a situation. Is, I think the, secular forces in, the secular forces are ob- obviously on the rise. They are they, their number is long larger. Uh, the young. Let me put it this way: thirty. Uh, I mean, sixty-five percent of the Iranian population is under thirty years of old. I've age. heard that before. I was going to ask you. So that, but. I mean, these young people are really secular, except for a small group among uh-huh. them. They are just like our kids here, young people. The same aspiration, mm-hmm. the same hopes, uh, expectations. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how so is again, it? Uh, I don't think so that what? even during the, the the Iranian didn't make a revolution for religion. They made a revolution to for for democracy, for better life. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, unfortunately, the, uh, the religious uh, forces took over. Mm-hmm. And they changed the the whole game and made it more Islamic, and then they enforced an Islamic government on Iran. And uh, you know, I think even the Islamic people are now troubled with this system, the theocracy. You know, it's because Iran is the only theocracy on the earth. Uh, right. There is no theocracy anymore. You know, I don't know how far they can go, how long they can stay and uh, the, what justification they have for theocracy. You know, in, in Egypt, immediately after the you know, Islamic Brotherhood tried to move toward uh, you know, theocracy, the people overthrew them. Right. So uh, nobody, nowhere in the region, actually, there is uh, anybody that, has... Yeah, you, you know, it's such a puzzling for me. I mean, I've been to Egypt, actually. I was there five years ago, um, and I loved it, by the way. Um, yeah, it's a great place. I have been there. It's a great time. place. Great place. And the people are fantastic. Uh, but, you know, you just wonder. I, I mean, I don't want to get too far afield because I want to touch on Syria in the few moments that we have left, too. But, you know, you, you just wonder. But I think in, in Egypt, the military was never pro Muslim Brotherhood. You know, so the military took a very strong role in getting rid of uh, the the guy that was elected from the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. Yeah. In Iran, too, unfortunately, the Iranian military during the revolution collapsed, you know, thanks to Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Let's not you talk know, about him. He's my least favorite president of recent times. Yeah, he, he basically messed up that. It, the, the military collapsed. I wish the military had stood uh, as the revolution had you know, moved forward, because then the, the military could have been a balancing power between the secular and the religious forces. So the biggest problem that Iran encountered at the very beginning of the revolution was that they, they, the military collapsed. After the military collapsed, they formed a new revolutionary guard, which were basically religious, from the religious groups. Yeah. And ever since, uh, that religious uh, 
military force uh, controls the society, yes. and the uh, conventional army has become increasingly, you know, isolated. Ru- you know, and maybe uh, a rubber stamp to the theocracy. You know, maybe the, the military. Right. They are just there because their leaders have all changed. Right. They're all right. Of the, the leaders. The, the body right. is secular, but the leaders are not. Right, it's not like in Egypt where the military really retained an anti-Muslim, you know, anti-extremist. Yeah, the military leaders are secular. In Iran, yeah, they're the secular, exactly. Exactly. And, and so let me ask you this. Do you think you would have won if you were allowed to be on the ballot? Yes, I would. Everybody really? would tell you. There is no question whatsoever. I was the most popular uh, candidate. And that exactly that is exactly why they would not let me register. Because if they... if if their view was that I was not important, that the people wouldn't vote for me, then they would have let me register and then let me lose. Right. And that would be that would be good for them because then they could have said that we even let a, a secular Iranian to run, and you, as you see, uh, Iranian people don't like secular uh, groups anyway. So here, Dr. Amir Ahmadi was allowed. He stood for presidency, he lost. So that would have been very good for them. That would be very democratic. But they didn't dare to do that, and they would not do that because I would have won this election. And they knew it for fact. They wouldn't even let me register, because they could, they could have let me register and then disqualify me. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even dare to let me register and disqualify me, because... They were afraid that my disqualification would even become a major issue in Iran. It could mm-hmm. create a protest movement in the country. And well, the fact that, well, let me ask you this. The fact that you weren't able to register, it, it, people didn't protest over that? They didn't, did they know about it? Did they, they didn't find know about out? It. Most, because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't reach them that I did. They couldn't know. They suddenly realized that, you know, I'm not on the ballot. I see. Remember, remember, by the time you get in uh, on the ballot, you know, for the ballot, you get approved by the and, the, and then the, the, the time that y- you get elected or otherwise, it only takes uh, less than three weeks. Right. There's a short so, campaign time. It's very, not like in the United short. States. It's yeah, not like very here. Short. That's right. Mm-hmm. In Iran, uh, you know, Rouhani became president in a matter of three weeks. That's all. Right. And uh, do you think you're going to be uh, permitted to run in four years again? Do you think they will let you run? Well, it all depends on the circumstances. The Islamic Republic, if it is, it is forced into accepting me, yes. If, 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 this, if this Islamic regime is strong and, you know, the, you know it, it has no fear of outside and no fear of domestic situation, no. I mean, this is the way... The, all the dictators operate. You know, if, if they if they are not threatened, why should they let you go in and and, 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 and challenge them? They only would let you challenge them if they are, they seriously feel threatened. Yes. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. So it all depends what happens four years down the road. What mm-hmm. would U.S. do with the, with the Islamic Republic? Whether mm-hmm. uh, whether uh, whether this new president. Uh, can really make relations with the U.S., can mend relations with Europe, can get the sanctions off uh, uh, the Iranian shoulder, 
can improve the economy, uh, it can improve the domestic politics. If if any of this, if all of this or any of this could develop, yeah, I mean, the Islamic Republic would be in a, a strong position and it would not uh, tolerate people like me. But if things go exactly opposite, and it has been, and it, uh, if it goes the way it has been so far, you know, more entanglement with the U.S. and, you know, Europe or Israel and more economic problem, more mm-hmm. sanctions and that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, I was reading... Would, I was reading one of the uh, interviews that you had given over the last few years, and you indicated that um, every effort should be made, or there should be an effort made to avoid a nuclear Iran. Now, why do you say that? I don't think that nuclear, uh, is, uh, the, the nuclear, to, uh, you know, bomb uh, would add anything. Security. It in fact, it has a destabilizing impact. I mean, even the regular enrichment has created quite a destabilizing situation. Uh, and uh, yeah, nuclear Iran will uh, will encourage other states in the region go nuclear as well, from Turkey, Saudi Arabia, God knows where. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also. I, I think Iran doesn't need nuclear, uh, you know, uh, the power. Uh, the, the the region around Iran, yeah, has a lot of nuclear. They have tons of them. Uh, Iran will never be able to uh, to compete with them. And finally, and this is the key, I don't think that the nuclear has any future really in the defense uh, system of any country. Uh, uh, our world is going increasingly toward what I call the cyber warfare. It is the cyber that is the next, you know, war technology, not bomb. In fact, I would say that I would expect in a few years countries like the U.S. and Israel and others develop cyber technology to the, uh, to the extent that uh, they may be able to even destroy bombs as they sit in their silos. Right. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, this, I believe it is this, I believe the future is with uh, warfare. Now, the future of warfare, if, and God forbid, is, uh, is cyber. And that's a very yeah, I don't disagree with you. I, I don't disagree with you. It's a very and dangerous development because cyber warfare would be completely endless, completely limitless. It is like your, you know, computer software. You know, there is no end to it. There is no end to it. Let me ask you this. how far we can go. No, you're absolutely right about that. Um, And this is a little bit off the topic, but not really. What do you think the United States should do with Syria right now? Well, first, uh, 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 at this point, uh, Mr. Obama has messed up uh, completely. You know, I think he he messed up by... um, Saying that I am for war and then withdrawing from it and letting the uh, letting first the Congress take over and then Mr. Gorbachev to take over, Mr. Putin to take over. So in fact, he lost the initiative first to the Congress and then then to the to the Russians. Uh, uh, he needs to 
take back that initiative. Uh, I'm not sure uh, uh, that can be done anymore uh, or any soon. The bottom line in the Syrian case is two. One, I personally don't like wars. I'm a peace person, so I'm <laughs> against too. war. And I've never, I've never advocated war, will never advocate war. So I am against U.S. Uh, intervention in Syria, the war intervention. But at the same time, I also am very much against the Syrian government because the Syrian government, that, that family, the Assad family, has run that country for almost 50 years, iron hand, and, and as republic, that's not right. That's, that has to end. That has to change. Yes, yes. That uh, a family cannot come and say, this is a Republican country. People will have the right to vote, but then it's this, at first the father, now the son, and then the nephew. You know, right. it's just not right. So I think right. if I was the United States of America, I would do everything in my power to overthrow that regime, but not to war. I would yes. do some other things. There, is, there are lots of ways. I totally agree with you, and I'm afraid we're out of time in a few seconds. And I want to thank you so much for appearing on Monergy Life. And sure, my uh, I, I know that I have learned an enormous amount speaking with you, and I hope that our audience has too. Uh, I'd okay. love to have you on in the future and continue this conversation because uh, it, it's really not enough time to discuss all the issues at hand. I know, I know, I know. And I thank you, and I send regards for all your listeners, okay? And thank you to all of them for listening and to you for providing this opportunity. Hope to thank talk to you. At another time. Thank you and uh, good night uh, to everyone from Monergy Life. Dr. Miramani, thank you so much for appearing as a guest. Good night, everybody. Good night.